All right, now we are ready. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to session number 41 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It's December now. We're coming up on, uh, you know, not too long, a little under a month, and we'll be coming up on the first anniversary of the beginning of this class. Uh, and <laughs> first, uh, I'm, 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 I'm very hopeful that we will get to Bree by the time we get to the first anniversary of the beginning of the class, uh, which I think is just darn good progress. Um, so, uh, tonight we are going to rejoin Frodo inside the Barrow. Uh, we had, a, well, at least I had a good time talking about the, the uh, Barrow White poem last time. Uh, such a such a wonderful poem for illustrating so many different things. Uh, I, I was kind of thinking afterwards, I was like, man, that Barrow White poem... If uh, if I were ever in the position of um, of teaching, you know, English 101 again, you know, and sort of uh, introducing people to like how to read poetic meter, the Barrowite poem would actually be something I'd be really tempted to use as as an illustration. That's why I ended up going in that direction and and spending so much time looking at meter and how meter works and all that stuff because that poem illustrates it really really uh, well. I think um, both the the way in which the regular simplicity of the meter works and. Uh, the way the deviations work is pretty cool. But anyway, okay. So that was, um, uh, that was fully, again, at least I had fun. I hope you had fun too. Uh, and of course, we're going to get back from our insidious iambic poetry of the Barrow Whites uh, to some more, uh, to some more cheerful and uh, uh, trochaic verse uh, from our old friend again here tonight. Um, but, um, uh, cool. Great. Okay, so tonight's class is called Good and Bad Inspirations, uh, because we will see Frodo have one of each during the course of uh, the night here tonight. We're going to come, uh, before we get to the reintroduction of Tom Bombadil, uh, we're going to come to, I think, what I think is a really important moment uh, in the uh, uh, in the Barrow. Um, oh, darn it, is my, no, okay, no, my sound is coming through. Phew. Okay, I thought I I thought that it had muted the sound on me. For some reason, my OBS mutes the sound occasionally, like apparently maliciously. Uh, so I was afraid that that had happened, but no, no, I seem to be going. So that's good. All right, um, good. Phew, Veronica, you made me scared there for a second because that's happened to me a bunch of times before. Um, anyway, cool. So. Uh, Oh, wait, actually, we was about to jump straight in, but before we jump straight in, I have an announcement to make. So this past Monday, which was yesterday, uh, we had our first uh, Mythgard uh, movie club meeting. Um, it's a, a new thing that we're doing at Mythgard, a, uh, a, a sort of an ongoing film discussion, um, which is sort of like the Mythgard Academy. Uh, seeking input on what uh, what films they cover next, so they want to they want to sort of do films by popular demand, um, and uh, the next one should be uh, sometime beginning of the year, uh, probably in January. Um, but um, uh, but so let me just show you uh, they are soliciting nominations. So I just wanted to make sure that you knew where those nominations were. If you just uh, go to where did they go? I had them here somewhere. There they are. If you go to the Mythgard forums, right at forums.signumuniversity.org. Uh, and you will see all of our different forums. There's all the film film forums, which of course have uh, uh, a lot of posts in them, a lot of activity been going on there in the film film forums over the last few years. This is of course where you can uh, and submit questions and things for me to talk about at the beginning of class. Um, Mythgard Academy discussions here and other things. Awesome, our creative writers group and stuff. Uh, and uh, at the bottom, 
and this is a, a new one, the Mythgard Movie Club uh, entry here. So if you go to the Mythgard Movie Club discussion, and here we have the 2018 movie selection thread, which was just posted. So that's where you can go if you would like to nominate a film for them to discuss. You can you can do it there. So just wanted to make sure that uh, you all saw how to do that. I, I think the uh, the the movie club is a really fun idea and I'm uh, looking forward to more future discussions and to seeing which movies you guys choose uh, to talk about. So, all right. Um, and also, one other uh, um, observation that I would make was um, uh, I, there a couple people have been asking about last week's post and stuff. There was a delay in posting my recordings from last week, which is entirely my fault. Uh, so I just wanted to apologize. I was slow in uh, posting recordings to things so that they could get processed and posted. So uh, my people are working hard as they always are on getting those things posted and it's a lot more work than it looks like to get all of the different sessions that I do every week, uh, edited, sorted, and and uh, processed, and tagged appropriately, and uploaded to all the various places with all the different combinations of supporting documents and stuff. So, uh, I, but anyway, they're working as hard as ever. But I delayed them this week, so my apologies for that. And we'll uh, and it, the stuff will all be uh, will all be coming up. So. Um, yeah, <laughs> see this? Uh, a lot of you wanted to, wanting to talk about the Rankin Bass Hobbit. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, I was trying to think, where did I? I mean, I know I've sat down and looked at clips and done an in-depth discussion of the Rankin Bass Hobbit. I'm trying to. Oh, right, in my Hobbit class, that's where it was. Yeah, in my story of the Hobbit class at Signum, uh, we did a week on uh, on the Rankin Bass Hobbit. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ah, uh, yeah, cool. Cool. Um, and uh, Druid's Fire, you know, the songs from the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, with one glaring exception, are by far the best thing about the film. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of many of the songs, almost most of the songs in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit. Um, uh, their take on the Tra-La-La-Lali song is... Re- I mean, I, I give them props for being still the only production, I think this is still true, the only production I've ever heard that actually d- tries to put the tra la la song to music, right? But Sharon, of course, Dorward is trolling me here with the one song which is the exception, of course. I absolutely uh, loathe, I think is the word, loathe the uh, greatest adventure song that uh, it's awful. Just awful. Um, uh, I hate almost everything about it, actually. But apart from that, I like all the songs in Rankin Bass. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's. I, I'm sorry, but the greatest adventure song, because again, it was it was in that class that I really learned to hate it uh, so much. Uh, and it's not just because of the warbly voice and stuff. Like I can live with the warbly voice, whatever. Like it's fine. But um, it's the lyrics. Like when you actually like slow it down and you look at the lyric and you you think about the lyrics and you look at how they're like the imagery that they're combining it with, it's like utterly nonsensical in a way that really ticks me off. Um, uh, but anyway, now the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, by contrast, is uh, uh, I think eminently worthwhile. Um, yeah, I'll take the ball- the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins by Leonard Nimoy above the uh, Greatest Adventure. <laughs> whatever title track of the Rankin-Bass Hobbit. Oh, man. Every single time. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, no, Oakwick, I mean, Frodo of the Nine Fingers is good. Where there's a whip, there's a there's a way is like, uh, uh, you know, one of the greatest movie songs of all time. So, I mean, the, Rank- the Rankin-Bass music is top shelf. I mean, their songs are, 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 are absolutely excellent. Um, the, uh, you know, Hologrow, yeah, they're down, down to Goblin Town. Classic. It's so good. Um, yeah, no, I absolutely love it. Um, but, uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the one, if people, you know, if anyone ever asks me, that is by far the, my favorite, I think the most successful element, uh, of the Rankin Best Hobbit, but I am getting distracted. So let's, let's carry on now and talk about the text. So it, again, final quick movies, Mythgard Movie Club, final pitch here. Uh, so don't forget about the Mythgard Movie Club. It's a brand new thing in which had that had, had their first session yesterday, um, and uh, you know we'd really love to to have uh, you know have more discussion about what films people would like to see, uh, so that we can you know encourage a new uh, a new conversation there. So all right, uh, let's let's get back let's get back to the Barrow Downs as we left Frodo in rather a tenuous situation, and we were looking last time primarily at the the sort of the struggle of will, right? You know where the battle was happening, and it's so easy, uh, you know, often in Tolkien's works to sort of I mean like if you're waiting for action, right? If you're waiting for you know like a fight scene uh, in order to show the struggle, you're often not going to get it, right? Many of the of the great battles. Uh, in Tolkien's work happen in silence and with nobody moving or doing very much, right? So I think that clearly when Frodo is lying there on the barrow, lying there with his hands folded on his chest, and we, um, that's when he is fighting his battle as we were looking at last time. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, um, as we're seeing that, as we're, as this, you know, the, the, the fear and despair is sort of threatening to close around him there in the darkness. And he's finding that seed of courage within him. Um, at that same, t- the, 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 the conjunction between that on the one hand and his perception of the sadness, right? The pity that, at least the narrator's description invited um, in, uh, uh, in in hearing the whites, right? That combination as we're as we're listening to the Barrow Whites, as we're hearing their their songs and and words and mutterings, the fact that uh, they were both exciting pity as well as horror, right? Um, it was terrible but also sad uh, to hear their songs. And then, of course, we looked at the uh, um, uh, we we looked at the the um, uh, the the song, of course, of the Barrow White in some detail, where we saw uh, some of those similar kinds of things. And yes, uh, 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 Mike and Tony are both suggesting really good examples of exactly the kind of thing that I was just talking about, those kinds of silent battles. The initial showdown between Gandalf and the Balrog, Tony, absolutely. Um, Aragorn in the mouth of Sauron, great example, Mike, right? Uh, I love that moment, right, when uh, Aragorn is looking at the mouth of Sauron, and he the mouth of Sauron pulls back and is like, I am an emissary and may not be assailed. Like, nobody did anything, right? Nobody made any move. And he feels like he's under attack. You know, that's, um, uh, that's classic, right? And obviously, uh, Gandalf and Saruman, obviously another really good example of that, the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman at Orthanc. Um, so anyway, lots of examples of this kind of thing. Um, but, and I, again, my point is I think that we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing another one here. JJ asks, should evil always move us to pity when properly understood? 
Yes, I think so. Um, to some extent, I mean, you know, JJ to kind of jump to the Silmarillion for a second. You know, one of the things that I that I think there, um, uh, one of the that as the the passage leading up to the line that Tony was just quoting and still remain evil is exactly the scene. In particular, thinking about Manway's uh, sorrow. Um, you know, his reaction to the rebellion of the Noldor and the oath of Feanor is to, to weep for the marring of Feanor, right? And so, J.J., to some extent, I think that that's, that is a reaction we should always have. It does, of course, Tony, as Mandos reminds us, evil still remains evil. It's not to say that it's justified. It's not to say it's okay. It's not to say you can just look past it and be like, oh, you know, we can just let bygones be bygones and everybody wants to be loved. Like, it's... It's not that simple, right? And yet, yes, there is pity. Um, there's pity, and of course, you notice Manway in that scene is not just f- showing pity for Feanor in particular, like, oh man, this guy's really digging himself in a hole. He is digging himself in a hole, and it is pitiable, but but it's not just that, right? Um, he is mourning for, like, the thing that, fe- you know, that the, 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 the great you know, servant of Luvatar, the great, uh, the great accomplishments that Fanor could have done, the great person he could have become, he should have become, right? Had he chosen better and differently. Um, you know, it was sort of in grief and mourning for that. Um, so Marianne, exactly. It's for his fall that he's mourning for the, for the person he's no longer going to become. And that's the same is true for Melkor. The same is true for Sauron. I mean, there's no one, those who are the most evil and have fallen furthest and done the worst, um, are in that sense the saddest, right? And uh, and and yes, um, there is pity, there is pity engaged, even even for Morgoth. But again, it's not to say that you just the, the the point is not to overlook the evil. The point is not to look away from it or to um, to excuse it in any way at all. And that I think is a really important thing, right? You can pity a wicked person without excusing the wickedness, right, and the things that that person has done. And I think that Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's world is pretty consistent about that. Um, yeah, for Thoughtless, I agree. Pity for those who do evil is very Boethian. Uh, you may remember that, of course, is Lady Philosophy's... Uh, uh, and remember, one of the, the sort of um, uh, paradoxes that Lady Philosophy goes on to show is that, remember, uh, the good are always powerful and the evil are always powerless, right? One of Boethius's questions is why is it that, like, good guys don't, you know, like, the bad guys always win? And, uh, you know, it's like, it shouldn't be, right? Shouldn't shouldn't the virtuous triumph and, and the evil get put in their place if the world is being run, you know, by a just and, you know, if the world's a just and orderly place, why doesn't that happen? Um, and Lady Philosophy says it does. It, it does happen. Right, uh, evil people never triumph, um, but by being evil, they have they have they have fallen and failed. Like they are, um, they may just like Melkor is in power for a long time. Right, he he appears to win, and yet of course he himself the whole time is uh, losing and losing deeper and deeper. Um, so yeah, it's um, uh, it's. A very Boethian principle to have that kind of pity for uh, um, uh, for for the evil ones, um, for those who have fallen in that way. Um, yeah, Matt, I agree. Um, the contrast between Frodo and Saruman uh, at the end uh, really 
um, illustrates this very well, right? The resentment that Saruman feels for Frodo's pity is extremely illuminating, right? Shows us a lot about where Frodo and Saruman both are there. I think that's a great point. Um, anyway, okay. So, uh, yeah, so that's my synopsis of where we were last time. So let's keep going. Um, first, the creeping hand. He heard behind his head a creaking and scraping sound, raising himself. So remember, the incantation is just finished, right? Um, uh, Till the Dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land is where we've just ended up, right? He heard behind his head a creaking and scraping sound. Raising himself on one arm, he looked and saw now in the pale light that they were in a kind of passage, which behind them turned a corner. Round the corner, a long arm was groping, walking on its fingers towards Sam, who was lying nearest, and towards the hilt of the sword that lay upon him. Why? I mean, okay. Presumably, the hand and the arm are attached to a Barrow White, right? Um, Why is the Barrow White walking its hand from around the corner? Um, I mean, this is not a disembodied hand, exactly. I mean, it's not a dismembered hand. Um, We're not actually seeing an animated hand dragging its, you know, arm dragging itself across the floor by its fingers, right? That's not what's being described here. Um, a long arm is reaching around the corner, uh, and it is walking on its fingers, but it's presumably attached to something around the corner, right? Um, so, why does why does this happen? Right? Um, Tamara asks, why is it presumably attached to something? Um, I presume it's attached to something because the round the corner. Round the corner, a long arm was groping, right? Now, again, it doesn't say, he doesn't see anything on the other end, so we don't, we can't prove that there's something else there. Um, but the way that Frodo sees it disappearing is suggestive that there's, at least he seems to be assuming that there's something on the other side, right? Um, Also the fact that he, um, as we will see in a few slides, is going to dismember it, right? He's going to cut off the hand and the thing reacts as if it's actually been dismembered, right? Um, Rather than like it's lost a couple inches of, you know, dismembered forearm or whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you guys are remembering the, uh, around the corner. Yes. I, 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 there aren't any new roads or secret gates around that particular corner in that Vilkius. I agree with that. Uh, um, it's something else entirely. Um, but now there may, of course, be a simple explanation, like a simple physical explanation. Um, uh, one of you, um, who was it? 
oh, Nadvokius earlier on, was saying maybe the passage isn't tall enough to stand in. Like, for instance, that's a fine theory, right? Um, that may well be... Um, uh, that w- that may well be the case, which would explain why this thing is just kind of re- instead of standing there above him, right? So n- nothing just walks around the corner and picks up the sword, right? Um, Matt, I also agree. We do have to remember the light. Remember the light that Frodo is seeing by is emerging from himself, right? He is uh, the source of the greenish, uh, unattractive light, right, that is sort of illuminating the, uh, um, uh, sort of illuminating the room. Um, now, is he, uh, is he the white? Is the white messing with Frodo? Here, a couple of you were suggesting something, something like that. Um, I agree that the hand, the image of the hand walking on its fingers, does give the mental imagery of a spider, uh, blue wizard. That's that's true. It, it certainly, it's effectively creepy, right? But I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to this question. I'm a little hesitant to merely give a a sort of circumstantial response to that. That is to say, like Nadvokius, I kind of like the idea that the the place they're in is very low to the ground, and so a full-grown white would not be able to stand up uh, inside the inside the the crypt. That kind of works for me, you know. But um, yeah, and uh, a couple of you. Uh, uh, in the Twitch chat, I can see are talking about the Adams family, and you know I agree. Thing from the Adams family is like the the visual image that I can't escape when I'm reading this scene. Right, I I can't help myself thinking about thing from the Adams family, um, which is not um, which is not really appropriate, right? It's not like that. Um, it's kind of confounding, I think. I always I try to suppress that thought because I, I, I think it biases the reading in, in uh, uh, you know, in a couple different ways. Um, but uh, anyway, but it's hard to escape. It is certainly sort of the natural memory. Um, uh, so What do you do? Let me explain why, I, in the end, I'm resistant to the because the ceiling is really low explanation. Um, the reason at the end of the day I'm, I'm resistant to that is that that involves us kind of making... I don't recall any, any insistence on that. Right, like the story doesn't say that. It may well be that that's the case, but we have to import that concept in order to explain this. And it's like that's not a wholly inappropriate thing for us to do. It's, there's nothing totally wrong with that. But what I would rather do first is to try to understand it in the context of what the what the text does give us here. Right, um, and. Uh, and boom, I agree. That's exactly the question. Why? 
grope around the corner instead of just stepping around the corner. Even if it's on all fours or, you know, on its belly because it can't stand up, why does its head not come around the corner at all, right? Um, There seems to be an effect that it's going for. There seems to be something symbolic in this. Um, and I say this not just, um, that's not me just trying to get all English teachery, right, and be like, uh, this strange passage must be a symbol of this other thing. No, I mean that the Barrow White himself is intending a symbol by this. And I say this because of the whole context. Look at, look at what's going on here, right? Look at how they've been dressed and postured in ritual positions, right? This is a ritual moment. Clearly. I mean, it's, they're laid out with this sword across their necks and they've been, you know, bedecked in jewels and they're wearing white robes and they're lying as if laid out for death with the, the sword elaborately over their, over their throats and now a hand is going to grab the hilt of that sword. This is not just like, I'm a bad guy coming along, like I'm a, like a, a zombie coming along going to eat your brains. This is somebody coming and trying to kill you by a threatening and avail- an available weapon. Right? That's not what's going on here. What's happening is the enactment of a ritual, in some sense. Right? I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, first, because first it has laid them out in this way, with the throat, with the, the sword across their throat, and now it is reaching out for the handle of that sword. It is now time. It's, it's not just like, and now it's trying to kill them. Yes, it's trying to kill them. But it's more than that, right? Now it's time to complete the ritual that it has set into motion. Right? And rituals are highly symbolic, right? There's, there's, there's purpose for these. It, there's, it's, it's laid out this way. It could have killed them already, right? If the goal was simply to cut their throats with a blade, it's, they've had opportunities, right? They changed their clothes. They put jewelry on them, right? They could have cut their throat a hundred times if that's what their goal was. But no, their goal was to set this up in this particular way um, in order to do this in a particular manner, Right. Um, And part of it seems to be about the fight with Frodo. Um, uh, So, you know, I'm um, I'm thinking that that's the way this is sort of the um, the context, it seems to me that the text really gives us in order to understand what's going on here. So the reaching, the hand reaching, you know, walking across and, and reaching out for the sword seems to be part of it. I don't know what part of it exactly. Why is the white not looking on? Why is the white's head not engaged? Even if this hand is not attached to a body, which I can't absolutely rule out, um, but even if the hand is not attached to a body, then we know that the white, there is a white who has a head, right? And eyes, because Frodo saw the eyes when he was captured, right? Why is he not looking, right? He has a mouth too. He's singing. Why is he not, why, you know, why is he not there? Why is he, uh, um, uh, why is he not, you know, watching, gloating, whatever, you know, a bad guy might do in this, uh, in this certain, uh, situation? Um, we don't know, right? We don't know the reason for those things, but there does seem to be a reason. We just don't know it, right? Um, the impression that I have here um, is, 
again, it seems like a ritual moment, kind of like somebody who's performing a, sac- a, a sacrifice might veil themselves or something first, right? Like, uh, you know, I will ritually not see the thing that is about to happen, you know, and, and that there would be some symbol, again, ritual moments like that, ritual enactments, especially ritual sacrifices, are almost only, not, not only symbolic, but actually allegorical, right? Where each, where the, you know, the, the, the celebrant, right, that is the person who is wielding the, the blade and performing the sacrifice is often standing in for someone, you know, like enacting part of a sacred story or something like that, right? Um, and uh, and the, the thing being sacrificed is almost always a representative of something else or, or a, a stand-in for something else or whatever. Um, and again, we don't have all the information here. We only have what the thing revealed in its song. Right, and that doesn't really give us enough to to parse the details um, of the moment here. But that's very much how I read this: is as a is as a ritual moment, uh, and uh, and so uh, so whatever reason it is, that enactment seems to involve not having, you know, this not just being about. I am coming to kill you, but rather you are being killed. And the other thing that I can't get away from are those last two lines of the song, right? Where did he just end up his song? Uh, He began an incantation, right? And he ends up with, till the dark Lord lift his hand over dead sea and withered land. And at that moment, a hand comes in, right? Just a hand coming in. This hand comes in and lifts, you know, so this white is lifting its hand, over the Hobbiton is going to kill them, right? Again, remember, ritual, sacrifice, enactment, allegory, right? It almost sounds like this is an allegory of the prophecy, the discussion, right? Tony, yeah, like an executioner wearing a hood. It's a lot like that, exactly. Um, anyway, just as, so, I mean, is that the key? The, the 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 end of the song the hand in the end of the song and the hand in the is that the is that the sort of the link there right um exactly marion so it would be representing the dark lord so right so just as the dark lord is going to lift his hand and the result of that is going to be the withering uh of the land and the slaying of the sea right so the dark lord will lift his hand and everything will die so to having invoked that right having predicted that now i'm going to reach my hand and I'm going to slay these hobbits, right? And so I'm, I shall make these. So the hobbits represent, therefore, they allegorically stand in for the sea and the land, right? The world of the living, as everybody else uh, in, 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 uh, enjoys it, right? Um, and the white's hand is going to be like the hand of the Dark Lord, bringing an end to it, right? Now, Nat Vilkius, you're right. The white isn't lifting his hand. He's creeping it along the floor so far. Presumably, he's going to lift it when he, when he gets the sword, right? So the, the, the hand is going to grab the sword, and then it's going to lift, right? And then it's going to come down. I don't know. I, maybe that doesn't work. Maybe that's not right. I have no idea. Um, but that's the connection that I personally can't kind of get away from. And the bonus for that is that it kind of helps me to understand why the white wouldn't show his face, right? Because again, if he is enacting a ritual, if he's enacting uh, a, 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 an allegory, right? He wouldn't want it's it's he wouldn't want himself to be a part because it's not about him, right? Then his 
his hand is supposed to be disembodied because the hand itself would represent the hand of the Dark Lord lifting over the dead, over the dead sea and withered land. So it's not about, I, the white, I'm going to off these hobbits, right? That's not what's going on here. Instead, it's going to be, I, the white, as celebrant, right? As ritual celebrant, am, enact, am enacting uh, ritually and metaphorically the uh, slaying of life and, you know, of, of all life everywhere by the hand of the Dark Lord. Um, uh, so that's always the best sense I've ever been able to make of it. Um, it's still not entirely, um, uh, it's still not, I mean, I just don't find it entirely satisfying, but, um, <laughs> it's interesting. Aruron says, uh, Tolkien's aversion to allegory arises again. Allegory is aligned with dark rituals. Well, yes and no. I mean, good rituals are allegorical too. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and Tolkien's uh, antipathy to allegory is um, uh, often kind of overstated. I mean, a lot of Tolkien fans have kind of gone a little too far in the... You know, Tolkien talked about that in the preface to the second edition of The Fellowship of the Ring uh, in order to try to stop people um, who were insisting, or sort of assuming, really, that The Lord of the Rings was designed to be an allegory and should be, appro- you know, appropriately interpreted as such. And he was trying to say, no, 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 that's not how I think. And that's true enough, right? I mean, it's true enough that um, uh, it's not how Tolkien normally thinks. Um, the allegory is not very congenial to him. And I think you can see this because there are some, t- at times, when he is, by his own confession, attempting to write allegory. He's not always very good at it. Um, uh, in particular, the, uh, um, the, uh, the uh, Smith of Booten Major contains some kind of failed allegory on his part, uh, I think. I mean, it I, I fails for me. I, I don't feel like it works very well at all. He's just not very good at it. Um, there are places where he does it and, and does it pretty well, like in Leaf by Nickel, for instance, but... Um, but he just he doesn't think that way. He doesn't like reading things that way. He doesn't. He, it's not the way he normally thinks. But he very much appreciates the significant, and I would say especially this kind of thing. As Marianne was just pointing out, um, nobody who appreciated the Catholic Mass in the way that Tolkien did uh, would be completely immune to the sort of allegorical moments, especially the allegory contained in ritual, right? Uh, and Mary, I completely agree with you there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, Lady Shmabiolk, I do think, because he wasn't good at it, is one of the reasons why he doesn't like it. I mean, I, I just, I think it wasn't congenial to him. I mean, he, uh, he doesn't enjoy reading it, and he doesn't enjoy doing it either. Um, Whereas, like, for instance, C.S. Lewis is much better at allegory. He does, when he's setting out to do allegory, he does it much better. Uh, and he much more enjoys reading and, and discussing allegory as well. Not that the Chronicles of Narnia are allegorical, because they're not an allegory. Uh, it's not exactly the way that it works. That's, that's, that's a misunderstanding of the Chronicles of Narnia, but that's another story. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, Veronica, I too, I love allegory. As well, I think allegory is just uh, uh, a hoot. Um, I love 
thinking in allegorical terms. I love reading things. Uh, you know, I love reading. I, I don't mean I love allegorizing things. I love reading things that were allegory, like medieval allegories. I just love. Um, I really appreciate that mode of that mode of thought, that mode of explanation. You know, it's one of many re- one of many ways in which Tolkien and I are very different. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, good. Um, yeah, a couple of you were talking about allegories like Pilgrim's Progress. Yes, exactly. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. And if you read Pilgrim's Progress and hate it, well, there you go. I don't. I love Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, it's adorable, for one thing. Um, and I find it really interesting and really powerful in many others. Uh, I, I, I love it. I mean, Bunyan isn't my favorite. Spencer is my favorite, right? I mean, I, Spencer's allegory. The Fairy Queen, that's, that's, that's it, right? I love the Fairy Queen and the allegory and the Fairy Queen. Um, Bunyan's, Bunyan's good, too. I mean, I like Bunyan. But again, whatever. Like, it's not for everybody. It's not a universal taste. Um, yes, Darren, Tolkien absolutely would have a stricter definition of allegory than our present-day use of the term, mostly because allegory as a mode has fallen way out of style, and nobody really does it anymore. Um, so most people don't really know what, like, a, a real allegory is. Pilgrim's Progress, I think, is one of the few allegories still read by anybody. You know, there are a lot of Christians who still read Pilgrim's Progress, um, but, uh, but it, there are very few things which are designed to be allegorical, um, uh, which people read anymore. Whenever I say, if whenever I say the Chronicles of Narnia are not an allegory, I always get a lot of like my own family does this to me. You know, they're like because basically they, they if I say it's not an allegory, what a lot of modern people hear is like it's there, there's no real Christian symbolism in it, and I'm like, no, that's not the point. There certainly is. Obviously, there is. It's just it's not an allegory. Like you can't you can't you can't go along saying like the White Witch represents this and Mister Tumnus represents this other thing, and you know, um, Fenris Alfer Mogrim, depending on whether you're reading the American or the British version, uh, represents this other vice. Like it's not if 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 that doesn't work, it's not an allegory, and it isn't. Um, anyway. But I told you I wasn't going to get sidetracked on that, so I'm totally not. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, ritual. Allegory. That's how we got onto this. I was trying to follow the breadcrumbs of my own thoughts back to where we were, which is um, the fact that I read this moment um, because it's just weird. Like, I I don't care how low the roof is. And again, that's, that's a perfectly plausible... Um, that's a perfectly plausible explanation. Um, but I, uh, nothing, none of that to me sufficiently explain, no mere, um, sort of cause and effect or like argument by convenience to me is sufficient to explain the, this rather peculiar behavior by the white. Right. Uh, again, I, like I said, I don't care whether the hand is attached to a head or not. There are heads around. And the fact that the fact that anything, anything for any reason, thinks that the best or most effective or, uh, you know, most plausible way to execute somebody is to, like, reach your head around the corner when you can't see and pick up a sword and blindly decapitate them. Like, that's not practical. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's it's not um to me, thinking 
this is a move by the white again, not by Tolkien, by the white himself. This is an allegorical move by the white. This is a this is an enacted ritual which has a symbolic meaning, a deliberately symbolic meaning from from the white's standpoint. That seems to me a much more satisfying explanation of that behavior than trying to build up some combination of you know, physical circumstances which sort of necessitate this as an, as an action, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and JJ, what's the cause of the, of the light coming from Frodo? Um, no idea. No idea. I mean, it seems to be part of the magic of the white. I mean, one of the spells of the white. Which means, and a couple of you um, were kind of talking some of this way earlier on, um, that is uh, about that there's a certain level of showmanship here. Um, Freaking Frodo out seems to be part of the goal. I mean, heck, I think that even waiting until Frodo was awake to pull off the execution, to do the ritual slaying of the other three hobbits, seems to be a choice. Um... I mean, Frodo was asleep. We don't even know for how long, right? So, again, lots of opportunity to off people, which the Whites didn't take. Clearly, it's not just blood or brains thereafter in the most expedient possible fashion. That's perfectly obvious, right? There is something more to it. And I think it's part of this struggle, part of the non-physical battle that Frodo and the White have had going on here. Um, that now, after the incantation, it is going to make Frodo watch uh, this hand, you know, this dark and dead hand, uh, come crawling in and kill his friends. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Darren was just quoting the passage when Frodo is captured by the white. We do get the, the two eyes, right? Cold and lit with a pale light. Uh, we get the grip stronger and colder than iron. Implication being that the eyes are in a head that is attached to the hands, but we don't really know, right? All uh, uh, Frodo gets are the, the sort of the, the disjointed stimuli there. Um, and uh, Darren is saying it seems like the light is part of the paralyzing spell on him. Yes. Um, uh, the he when the eyes look at him right he is in the this sort of spiritual grip of the uh of the barrel white there and uh its influence over him through the through its eyes uh that seems to be that seems to be part of it there um yeah yeah okay let's keep going now Here is the really, really important bit. At first, Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned into stone by the incantation. Then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring whether the barrel white would miss him and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving for Merry and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do. Okay. We have come to what is, I think, clearly a ring thought. This is the influence of the ring. I'm confident in that. Why? Why do I think that? Well, first of all, he's thinking about the ring, 
right? That's the number one thing, is that the ring tends to make you think about it, right? So um, this is, I think, clearly the ring's influence on him. Um, and yes, Darren, you're absolutely right. The other giveaway is for me that last sentence. Darren, Darren says, previously, Frodo's ring monologue explained away any objection from Gandalf, right? Gandalf's advice was absurd, right? Um, he was still in the Shire, remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that kind of rationalization, right? That kind of like, no, this is really a, a good idea, right? I can see how this is really a good idea. Um, and yeah, among me, that idea, he'll just, he'll mourn his friends, right? It's terrible that they're dead, right? And it's not that by running away, I'd be being like callous or, or, or whatever. Like I, I would, I'd, I would grieve for them, right? So like that would be, that would make it okay. Cause there's nothing, obviously there's nothing that I could do. And yes, Matt, the, the way that it's described about, about, uh, uh, the thought coming to him, right? A wild thought of escape came to him. But the important thing, I think, here is what Tony just said. The ring doesn't offer something you don't already want, right? This is a thought that comes to him, but it's not like it comes out of nowhere, right? This is a thought of escape, like run away from this horrifying, terrifying situation that you're in, right? It's not like that thought has not wandered through his mind at any point in the last few minutes, right? Um, It's more like the ring is seizing upon this impulse, which he's obviously, which he obviously has, right? And he obviously is fighting down, especially at this moment, right? Um, But also, what is the impulse? What does the ring want him to do? To leave, to go off, to abandon his friends and go off, right? And we've seen it do that before, right? So... How many times now have we seen, I count four, four times, this is the fourth time that we have a passage which I think indisputably describes the ring attempting to influence Frodo's mind, right? Four? One, when he tried to throw the ring in the fireplace at Bag End and couldn't, right? And he's there admiring the ring and how perfect was its roundness, right? It was an altogether admirable and precious thing. That's number one. Right. Number two is when the Black Rider is creeping towards them across the ground, right, right as the elves are about to show up. Right. And he's the, you know, the, the, he should put the ring on, you know, uh, the, the, the advice of Gandalf was absurd. That's number two. Number three uh, is the leaving the house of Tom Bombadil, right? Where was he going and what was he going to do? Would he ever have come back had he actually crossed the threshold and left? Um, and now this, number four. Am I forgetting? Am I forgetting any? Is that is that? I think that's it, right? Four so far. We're tallying this, right? Not just counting, but but keeping track of all of these things. Um, and so far, I don't see again. It's really difficult because it's very tempting, right? Um, if you like the idea that the ring is fully sentient. Right, that the ring is conscious of its surroundings and makes long-term plans. Right, um, if you like that idea, you can fit that idea into everything that happens. Right, you can say, for instance, in this scene that you know the ring wants to get out of here. Right, because it 
you know, the ring plausibly thinks that if Frodo is killed by uh, the Barrow White here or taken by the Barrow White or Barrow Whiteified or whatever, that the ring is just going to join the horde of the Barrow Whites and be, you know, stuck here for a long time. So the ring wants out. So it puts this thought into Frodo's head in order to, you know, as part of its overall strategy to get back to Sauron. It works. I mean, you can you can do that. You can't stop that uh, if you want to do that. Um, but I don't... Um, I'm, I'm not sure yet that I see the, um, the, the, full, the justification for that kind, of, that kind of thinking. We look at this incident right here. Again, what is this thought? This is a thought that comes to Frodo. Is this strategic for the ring? Is this, is this, I don't think it's obviously strategic. Remember, the Barrow Whites are dark spirits that are sent to the Barrow by whom? The Witch King, who's right over there, right? I mean, he's like a few miles away, the Witch King, right? Um, is, uh, you know, I, is the plan that if he puts on the ring and runs out, into the barrow that it will reveal the ring to the barrow whites and thereby to the black riders. <sighs> you know, it's, um, it's possible, right? It's possible that it's, that it's part of a strategy here, but the thought that comes into Frodo's head, although again, I, I think that this scene is absolutely the ring working on him. It's working on him, right? Not necessarily just using him as a pawn. This thought is not an alien thought, right? This is not out of nowhere to serve the ring's purposes. This is very naturally what he himself is uh, is thinking, right? He's freaked out. He's terrified. Uh, and he, why should he think he could do anything else, right? Why should he think that he could rescue Um Frodo and Sam and, and Pippin, right? What's he supposed to do? Kill the Barrow White? Right? How? What's he gonna, he's not even armed. What's he going to do? Strangle it? Uh, you know, I, I, and he doesn't even have a neck, right? He's got a hand. Um, so it's odd, right? I mean, it would be strange for him to try, you know, what, like fisticuffs with the Barrow White here, right? So his own impulse, his own impulse to say, there's nothing I can do. They're going to die. They're not dead yet, but they're totally going to die, and I'm going to run off, right? And no, uh, old Toby, I agree. The ring wouldn't worry about grieving, but it does make... It's good at rationalization. That's been a trend we've seen all the way through, right? Um, one of the major... Uh, one of the major things that all four of those passages have in common is are those statements of rationalization, right? Um, as if the the ring is kind of working on Frodo's um, uh, sort of like knowing that Frodo is resistant to doing what it wants, and so it, it tries to sort of argue him into it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the manipulation of his own desires. Um yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 
Gandalf would admit there had been nothing else he could do. See, it makes perfect sense. Because see, here's the thing. Forget for a second what the ring wants. May or may not want, may or may not be planning. Right? What we know is the decision point that Frodo is in. Right? And um, if he makes this decision, it's going to change him. Right? And that too, has been consistent, right? Um, think about, think about again for a second. Forget the ring. Forget the question of its own intentions, and think about Frodo only in the decision, the choice that Frodo is pushed to make in all four cases, right? First, are you going to throw the ring away? You said you you'd be willing to destroy the ring, right? Will you throw it away into the fire? And he doesn't want to, right? Because it's so beautiful. How could he just chuck away the ring, right? Is he going to do it or is he not going to do it? He chooses not to do it. And Gandalf says that shows that the ring has far too much hold on him already, right? That is, he is being changed. Again, forget about the ring for a second. Think about him, right? He is being changed, Um he is being affected, he's being influenced in his own choices, in his own priorities by the ring. The second choice right, is not just about, on the one hand, it's about responding in fear, right? But it's also about defying the advice of Gandalf. Gandalf told him it was, he should, he should not wear it again, right? Um, he shouldn't put it on. Um, so is he going to do what Gandalf told him to do? Or is he going to do what seems best to him, right? Bilbo had used the ring, and he was still in the Shire, right? All kinds of good rationalizations for doing this thing that he has reason to know is wrong, is foolish, right? But is he going to listen to that, or is he going to decide for himself, right? What he should or shouldn't do, is he going to take that into his own hands? It's a small choice, right? It's not like the choice between obvious good and obvious evil, Right? Um, it's not like, um, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking about <laughs> Anakin Skywalker and the Revenge of the Sith, right? It's not about, like, do I go and slaughter lots of children or not, right? It's not one of those moral decisions. Uh, rather, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a much, it's a much smaller point. Um, but anyway, and then again, the third one does he leave, right? Does he stick to his dignity, like Tom Bombadil is making light of the ring, right? Does he walk out? He's not storming out in a huff, right? Except he kind of would be, right? He was a trifle annoyed at Tom. But even that sounds like a rationalization. I think he's more than a trifle annoyed, right? There's a part of him that's upset, um, such that he's leaving the house, right? He's going to walk out. Um, And... uh, uh, and here, right, he's uh, he's tempted to do a thing that he surely really wants to do, which is run away. But again, if he does, it's losing, right? He is being guided by the ring to essentially give up the struggle, 
that he's been having with the Barrow White. If he gives in to fear like that, if he just tries to escape and run away, the White wins. Do you think that's going to work? I don't think that's going to work. Again, ring aside, uh, the White is trying to fill him with fear. I suppose the White, to have probably thought of the possibility that filling him with fear is going to result in him trying to take off and run away, right? That's hardly an unanticipated response, right, to being dominated by fear. I suspect that the White would quite enjoy that, actually, if Frodo tried to do that. Now, would the ring enable it to escape from the Whites? I think knowing what we're going to learn about the ring in the next few chapters, no, I don't think that he would be invisible. I don't see any reason to think that he would be invisible to the Whites. Um, Yeah, and Hrothgar, the door to the barrow is sealed anyway, and the ring isn't going to give him the ability to open the door. Um, So, so yeah, when we think about it, though, Frodo's record is pretty bad. Right? Four times. Four times the ring has tempted him. How many times has he given in out of the four? How many times has he given in? First time? Yeah. He gives in. Right? He does not throw the ring into the fire. Second time. Put on the ring when the when the black rider's coming towards him. Yep, he does. His hand is reaching for the ring when the elves come in. If Gilderas shows up two minutes later, he's putting on the ring. Right? So I think he, 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 he gives in that time, too. And he's on the way out the door of Tom Bombadil's house before Bombadil says, Whoa, now, right? Wherever you were going, right? Um, if Tom Bombadil doesn't call him back, he leaves. All three times he's given away. This time, he doesn't, right? This time, he's going to resist. And it will be, so this, he's going to be one for four, after this one, and that itself is very interesting. Again, see, and this is why it's difficult. It's difficult because it's not what we want to hear. It's not what a lot of us want to hear. But the more I think about these passages that we've seen, the the what I think are clearly certifiable ring moments, right? Ring temptation moments. Um, the scenes that we get by which we can judge what is the ring up to, right? What is the ring's relationship with its bearer like? What does it really do to the person who is holding it? So far, the question of what is the ring's plan? What is the ring? Is the ring attempting to do something? Does it have a strategy? My answer to that so far is the story doesn't seem to be interested in that question. That's not the same thing as saying no, It's not, right? We can be sure that it's not. There are lots of questions that we have about a story, you know, that we have about a a text that the text just does not answer, right? Because it's not the thing that the text is interested in. Um, And to me, a really important part of reading a text carefully is not like looking really, really hard until we screw out of it the answers to all of the questions we want answered, but rather trying to be sensitive to what questions is the text, in fact, interested in answering. Um, So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, so we'll have to see. Maybe later on we will get some more instances of this kind of thing when we will 
get some more comment from the narrator, you know, where the passage will show more interest in the question of, so what was the ring up to? What, what does this scene look like from the ring's point of view? Maybe we'll get that, and we'll get more of that later on. But I don't think we're getting it. I don't think we get it in any of these first four. Um, I don't. I just don't think we're being given enough data to put together a psychological profile of the ring, um, because it's not about the ring. It's about Frodo, and it's about the ring's influence on Frodo. That seems to me what the story is much more interested in. Um, yeah, good. Um, that's an interesting point, Tom. Tom uh, Thomas Joint says... Uh, I've noticed that the more powerful servants of Sauron seem to prefer to use fear and corruption before physical force. They seem to enjoy causing fear and pain, but are cowards at heart. Yes, not all of them are necessarily cowards. I mean, some of them can get down to butt-kicking when butt-kicking is actually demanded, right? But that doesn't mean that they don't prefer fear, uh, and that fear isn't... I mean, think even of such physically capable foes as the Balrog right? Or Glaurung the dragon, or um, the witch king himself, right? I mean, they they are capable, right? It's not that they're... I mean, are they... In some sense, perhaps, they might be cowardly, but they're not afraid to mix it up when the time comes, right? When push does come to shove. And yet, that's not what they do. It's not who they are, right? Um, Which makes sense, Right? Because, after all, you don't expect the bad guys to be valiant, do you? Right? That's a virtue. That's Good guys do that. Um, <laughs> their chief weapons are fear and surprise. says <laughs> true, it's fire. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Um, yes, yes. Um, well, see, Darren, we don't know how much the Barrowites are capable of physically. I mean, the fact that when it, it does seem to physically grab Frodo, and when it does physically grab Frodo, its hands are like, you know, cold iron, um, seems strong enough, seems capable. I don't know. Um, I mean, we don't really see a white open up on them, but it, that doesn't, it just, it's not what they do. It doesn't seem to be what they do. Um, not really what they're, what they're interested in. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good. Um, all right. <laughs> See what you did, Druid's Fire. Now everyone is sidetracked into Spanish Inquisition comments, which is really kind of inevitable once you begin. Uh, but anyway, okay, let's keep going. Let's look at Frodo's response. And the th- okay, okay, one more quick context before we read this passage. Remember that this choice that Frodo is making here, right? This choice of whether he's going to give in to this particular ring temptation or not, to leave, to isolate himself, which has been a trend, right? To go off and save himself uh, uh, and, and abandon his friends. Um, 
his choice, whether or not he's going to give in to that, which has got to be super tempting at this particular time, more tempting than any of the temptations. Okay, number two was pretty big when the Black Rider was crawling across the grass towards them, right? But even that was nothing like this. I mean, the Black Rider was spooky, right? The Black Rider made him feel very uncomfortable, but he didn't even know what it was, right? It was just this creepy, inexplicable thing in the Shire, which he totally did not want to find him and was worried about that. But that's different from, I am in a barrow dressed in grave clothes and I've been captured by a Barrowite and I've heard whispered stories about the horrible spells of the Barrowite and I'm probably under one already and my friends clearly are and here comes a uh, disembodied if whether or not it's actually detached hand to like execute them like you know no one could blame him for being seriously freaked out here again the temptation to run away a perfectly logical rational and, and totally understandable temptation but the point is not, this is not just about him in the ring. The fact that this kind of conflict between him and the ring comes up as the culmination of this battle he was already having with the white, right? One of the things that I think that we can see here is that the ring is like the white, in a sense, right? That is, it is trying to, it's piling on. Right. It is. It's you know, I, I'm not saying that it's allied with the white, that it's working together consciously with the white. But I am saying they do a similar kind of thing. The two of them. Right. Um, and to, re- to to give into the ring would be giving into the white as well. To resist the ring is also to resist the whites. Um, OK. But the courage that had been awakened in him was now too strong. He could not leave his friends so easily. He wavered, groping in his pocket, and then fought with himself again. And as he did so, the arm crept nearer. Suddenly resolve hardened in him, and he seized a short sword that lay beside him, and kneeling, he stooped low over the bodies of his companions. With what strength he had, he hewed at the crawling arm near the wrist, and the hand broke off. But at the same moment, the sword splintered up to the hilt. There was a shriek, and the light vanished. In the dark, there was a snarling noise. Okay, that's a sentence that actually is one of the ones that I find most scary. I mean, it's not the most creepy of all, but that's really pretty scary, right? Uh, Memoroid was talking about how bad guys, powerful bad guys, do use fear and intimidation first, but when push comes to shove, they're not afraid to mix it up physically. Push has just kind of come to shove here, right? Uh, Okay, you messed up my ritual, right? Okay, fine. You know what? Forget it. We're not doing this anymore. I'm turning the lights off. This, of course, makes it pretty clear that the light was coming from... uh, That was... It was the power of the white that was casting the light, right? Because it shuts them off as soon as it gets hacked by Frodo. Uh, the light goes out, and now there's a snarling noise. Now it's just like being in the dark with a like vicious wild animal that might rip into him at any moment, right? As indeed ripping into him seems to be what is on the mind of the white just now. Um, you won't like him when he's angry. <laughs> exactly, Brandon. Um, exactly. And yes, Fourth Dauntless, I was really noticing that too, which I don't think I'd ever really thought about uh, 
Oh, good. Yeah. Hrothgar had just been saying the same thing about the shutting off of the light, proving that it's of whitish origin. I totally agree. Um, and, um, Anyway, but uh, Fort Thomas, just exactly as you were just saying, I was noticing this as I was reading that passage. I was thinking more about that. The hand breaks off. He doesn't cut it off. Um, this is not Frodo severing the hand, right? He, uh, he hews at the crawling arm near the wrist, and the hand broke off. Um... So yes, I agree. It isn't cut, it shatters. The white is dead so long, it's really nothing but dry bones. Yes. Um, Remember, well, I say remember. If you um, were with me, join me for the uh, discussion of the Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem uh, during the Webathon back in October, uh, you may remember that there's a lot of skeleton imagery about the Barrow White there. When the Barrow White shows up and Tom Bombadil is responding to the Barrow White, there's a lot of uh, clinking of bone rings and, and, and there's a lot of skeleton talk um, from Tom Bombadil. Um, he talks about the Barrow White as, as if it is much more skeletal than zombie, right? Um, more bones, less in the way of decayed flesh, it would seem. Um, and the sword splinters up to the hilt. So the sword breaks and the hand breaks off. Hmm. I wonder how to understand the um, connection between those two things. Yeah, Hrothgar, that's exactly the kind of question I'm asking right now. Does the sword break because it's old, or because it breaks the white's power and shatters doing so? Or a third possibility, Hrothgar, um, is it by breaking the sword um, is that the breaking of the white's power? You know, does breaking the sword break the white's power? Um, like, is it the breaking off of the hand that breaks the sword, or is it the breaking of the sword that breaks off the hand, if you see what I mean? Um, uh, it is true, Tony, that later on we will hear that all blades perish that pierce the Witch King. But, of course, you'll remember that Mary's sword will burn away after doing so, and this seems to be different anyway. But we do have precedent. Well, we will have precedent for that kind of thing. We don't yet. Um, I certainly... I think that, again, if we just try to find normal kind of cause and effect uh, relationships here, that we're likely to kind of miss the point, right? Um, That is to say, yeah, the blade is probably dull... It's very old, and it might be brittle. Sure, yeah, though, perfectly plausible, all of those things. But I don't think any of them are especially helpful. Um, what we're given here is not just an account of, Frodo took up a sword, which was a great idea, but it was too bad that the sword was a really bad instrument, right? Unfortunately, that thing snaps really easily. Uh, so, you know, it didn't end up working out very well for him. No, I mean, there's, there's again, a symbolic significance to this, too. The breaking of the hand uh, of the white and the breaking of the sword. There's a connection. 
I'm pretty convinced that there's uh, meant to be a connection, that even the white feels the connection between those things. Absolutely, it seems symbolic or sympathetic in a ritual sense, Rothgar. I think that's a very good way of saying it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and yes, Matt, the fact that it splinters, uh, that's not normal. Uh, it might snap. An old sword might snap. Um, but it's not just going to shatter like glass, right? Um, so, yes. Um, but, Brandon, back to the, uh, the question of Frodo's choice. You know, Brandon is asking, it's interesting that Frodo resists here when he hadn't before. I think it's interesting, too. In a sense, this is the... The temptation to give in has got to be stronger than any of the other three times, right? This is the hardest of all four of the ring tests he's been given, so it is interesting that it's the only one that he passes, right? Why is that? Um, well, in part, in part, he... Uh, um, In part, it's that seed of courage, which has already been awakened, right? Um, that's the thing that's different. He was already in a life-and-death struggle before he was tempted by the ring. Now, on the one hand, you'd kind of think that that would make it harder to resist, right? When you're already, you know, struggling, uh, then you receive an additional impetus of temptation on top of that, right? Um, you'd think that would make it doubly hard to, to resist, but but then again, he was already in a resisting kind of frame of mind, right? He'd already been war, you know, battling with the white and fairly successfully when the ring then tries him in the same direction that the white was already, after his courage had already been aroused. So in some ways, Brandon, it seems to me even more kind of natural that he would resist, under these circumstances, even, even, uh, even though the, not just even though the situations are more trying, but because the situation is more trying. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, fierce as a dragon in a pinch, says Robert. Exactly, exactly. He's fierce as a dragon in a pinch. Gandalf would testify to it. Yeah, good. Um, Yeah. Now, Kimber, I agree that the ring is tempting him to betray his friends, which is perhaps too much too soon, right? He's not ready to do that yet. Um, you know, if he ever will be ready for that exactly. I agree, but I'm not sure. On the one hand, I, I, yeah, I, again, I, I do take the point, but remember, it's not totally different from what he was tempted to do last time, Right? put on the ring and leave his friends behind. Now, leaving them behind in the congenial house of Tom Bombadil is a very different thing and much less of a betrayal than right now, but but this doesn't look like a betrayal either, right? I mean, the rationalization works. There's not... What else could he do? Right? What's he gonna... I mean, he can't possibly win in a fight against the Barrow Whites. 
So it's not a choice of like, do I save my friends or do I betray them and abandon them and leave them to die? No, the only real question is, do I die here with my friends or do I try to escape? Alive myself, you know, mourning for them, but alive and whole myself, right? I think it's really the question. The question is, because it's not a winning isn't really on the table here, right? Frodo's been reconciled to die since he woke up. The only question really is, how is he going to die? How well is he going to die? Um, and, um, yeah, so, so again, it's not about, do I give up my friends to death or not? That, I don't think it's about saving them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Tony says this is our first ends versus means decision. Maybe. Maybe. To some extent, Tony, you could say that the second one, when the Black Rider was approaching them, when the Black Rider and Gildor were both approaching them, you could say that that's an ends and means question as well. Um, yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So the sword shatters, the hand breaks. I realized that other thing that was good, so we were talking about uh, Frothgar when you were talking about um, the the um, the breaking of the like the breaking of the sword seeming to be connected with the breaking of the spell. Right, how the light disappears and um, and the ritual is broken. Right, that that seems to me. And there was something else that was kind of niggling at me. A parallel, not a non-Tolkien parallel. That then I finally placed what it was, of course. Um, and uh, what I'm what I was thinking of is the Black Cauldron, actually. Um, when uh, when uh, Taran and Islandwy find themselves in a barrow. Uh, as they're escaping from Akron's castle. And uh, when Ailenwi takes the magic sword Dirin Wynn out of the hands of the king, the dead king in the barrow, and the entire place collapses, right? Um, as you know, that like the, the spells are rigged to something, right? Which might not make any sense, right? It's not always necessarily a logical, but it, that's the kind of thing that happens, right? Um, so the idea that... Um, uh, the idea that that uh, the performing of some action like this has some kind of symbolic significance, even if the symbolism is not clear, right? I mean, again, in that story, nobody knows why that's important, right? Um, except that wasn't in the Black Cauldron, was it? That was in uh, the first one. That was in the Book of Three. Sorry. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um... I only bring that up not because the Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander is directly relevant to this passage, but because both of them, both this scene in the Barrow and that Barrow scene in the Book of Three, are both sort of appealing to a similar kind of, uh, you know, haunted stories in ancient Barrows kind of tradition. And my point is just this is the kind of thing that does happen. This kind of spell breaking. This kind of 
perform some action and it has consequences beyond the sort of natural cause and effect conse- apparent consequences of the action. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Robert just posted a uh, uh, an image of Tolkien's drawing of his son Michael's nightmare of a disembodied hand reaching in through uh, past the curtains of his room. Wow, yeah, I've never seen that, actually. Or I've forgotten it if I have. That's really cool. Um, Valoria, I think there's... Uh, nothing could be likelier than that he put one of his son's nightmares into his story. But that's a classic example of the kind of explanation that I find least satisfying when it comes to understanding the story. Um, To say, to answer the question, why does the white just reach around the corner with its disembodied hand? To answer that question by saying, because Michael had a nightmare of a disembodied hand and Tolkien was referring to that and appealing to that scary image, is, to me, a bigger non-answer to the question than almost any other, actually. I'm not saying it's invalid. It may well be true, right? That may be exactly what suggested it to Tolkien. But it doesn't answer the question, right? It doesn't answer the question of how does it work in this story? What is its meaning in the context of this story? Because it still works in this story. Um, But anyway... um, yeah, Matt was saying he finally remembered where some of these images feel like they're coming from, from the Mabinogian. Uh, it's like uh, it's like the hand that reaches in during the story of Hryanan. Yeah, no, this the whole Barrow sequence. It's it's a very there's a there's a very Celtic feel to this whole thing, right? Um, this does strike me as a as an especially Celtic kind of moment, right? And that's Matt exactly why I'm thinking back to you know, Lloyd Alexander and, and using that to kind of appeal to that entire tradition. I do think that that's, that's the kind of precedent that, uh, Tolkien has in mind here. Um, yeah. Uh, Thomas says, what do I think about the answer? Because it's scary. I am minded of... I've just been rereading a bunch of C.S. Lewis's essays recently. And I am... That question puts me in mind of a point that C.S. Lewis made. He's illustrating a, a point about God, but which is not the point that I'm getting at. Um, but he says, what do you answer when somebody says, in Hamlet, when Ophelia dies, does Ophelia die because she's crazy and is trying to kill herself, or does she die because Shakespeare wanted her to die at that point in the play, right? Uh, and the point is, you can't, the, you can't choose, but that's not an alternative, right? Those The two options given there underst- are, are looking at the story in two different ways, right? Um, are, are they're asking two totally different questions. So, did Tolkien put in the disembodied hand because he thought it was scary, because it would be scary, right? And he knew it would be scary because he had evidence from his son's nightmare that it would be scary, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? 
But that's that totally doesn't even address the question of what kind of sense it makes inside the story, right? Yeah, okay, Shakespeare wanted Ophelia to die, I'm sure, for various reasons, right? But that doesn't answer the question about why she was out on that, why the character Ophelia went out onto that branch, right? Um, so uh, it's it's um, it's all about... There, there are two different things that we can talk. If you, if we, if you want to talk about what was in Tolkien's head when he wrote these things, we can talk about that. Um, I personally don't find those conversations very frequently much use, right? Because we're just guessing, and we're almost certain to be wrong most of the time. So I, it's pure speculation, and even when it's not. Um, that is even in the few cases we have where Tolkien tells us what he was thinking when he did that, I find it of little more than sort of curiosity interest, right? I mean, it's kind of interesting in the same way that it's interesting for, you know, like a stage actor to tell you about what was going on backstage during a play. You know, it's kind of cool to think about or, you know, interesting to hear about, but it's not like it helps you understand the play better, right? Um and I don't really think that the things that even if we knew for sure all the things that were going through Tolkien's mind and what his motivations were, that it would help us understand the story better. Um, so of those two things, what's going on in Tolkien's head when he's writing this and what is the story saying, what's happening in the story of those two questions, I am almost always interested almost exclusively in the second one. Um, and the most important thing, I think, is for us not to get the two of them confused. Right. Um, to say, um, you know, again, to say like this, you know, this thing in the story happens this way because Tolkien wanted to create this particular effect is simply a non sequitur when what we're trying to do is understand the story. Right. Um, do you see what I mean by that? And again, I, I, I hope, uh, I hope that that, that that makes, so I know that that can kind of come off wrong, come out wrong or, or come across wrong. When I say that, I don't mean to sound snobby or to, um, to some extent I have a, perhaps an underactive curiosity about what was going on in the mind of the author. Um, it's one of the reasons why living authors annoy me because they're always talking about things like that. And I don't want to know. I don't care. In fact, I find it a distraction. I'd rather not know, um, what they were thinking about <laughs> when they were writing it. Uh, but, and yeah, the dead are the better, the dead are the better, Nat Vilkius. That's totally one of my life mottos. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Okay, cool. Um, anyway, all right. Where were we? We were breaking spells and removing swords from barrows or shattering them inside it. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Matt, no, I was clearly not trained as a Yatesian or Joycean, and I know it's one of the things, I think, frankly, that uh, makes Tolkien a very uncongenial study for a lot of, like, why there's, you know, it's, Matt, why there are so few people who love Joyce and Tolkien. I know they exist, but, you know, why so... I have never met a Joyce scholar, like somebody who is just a Joyce scholar, who also really in his spare time enjoys Tolkien. I don't think I've ever seen that. Um, 
maybe now nowadays. See, well, I know yet yeah, Nadvilkius. I know Serena will do them both, right? But see, she's not a Joyce person who also does Tolkien. Uh, she's an Inklings person who also appreciates choice, <laughs> which is different. That's a different species. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, okay. Um, all right, uh, I should wrap it up soon. In fact, arguably, I should wrap it up now. What's? Oh yeah, we've got poetry on the next slide. No, there's no hope. Uh, so, um, well, what I mostly wanted. So, uh, I, the title of the class was "Bad Impulse." You know. Uh, uh, what, what did I call it? Good and bad inspirations, right? The ring's inspiration is obviously the bad one. The good inspiration is the one he's just about to have, which is to sing out for Tom Bombadil, right? Um, so we will get the context of his of his calling out and the verse itself, and then, of course, Tom Bombadil's verses uh, in response uh, next time. <laughs> See, oh, so the betting pool tonight was on how long I do we take on Frodo's song? Oh, and we didn't even get to it. Ouch! Oh, that hurts. Oh well. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, there it is. Um, but uh, but this was good. This was good. You know, um, it's especially interesting now thinking about this class and thinking about this class in the context of the uh, the whole. Amazon thing, right? Uh, it is going to be interesting to see as we continue uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, I wonder at what point in the narrative the Amazon series will pass us, right? Um, you know, that's that's the uh, that, that that to me will be the real the, a really interesting betting point, right? Um, uh, it's going to be. Because, see, we're going to have a head start, right? I mean, there's no way the Amazon series can possibly begin for a couple years, right? And no, I mean, like, what point in actual real time, right? So, because we're going to keep, so we're going to be three, at least three years into exploring the Lord of the Rings before the series begins. And they're talking about doing some prequel material, right? Some, some before the Lord of the Rings material. So they're not even going to start right off with chapter one. So as they go, and we're going to continue as they do that, right? Exploring the Lord of the Rings, so... It's uh, it'll be interesting to see like in what week, right? In what week will they pass us? Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, Tamara, I'm pretty sure that eventually they're gonna, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna pass us too. Um, yeah, yeah. During so we've got a vote for the uh, death of Boromir, one for the journey into Lothlorien. Oh, Matt, that's a particularly pessimistic view, <laughs> right? Uh. No, I think we might make the two towers. I really do. I really do. Uh, <laughs> Rivendell. Oh, come now. Come now. That's just not right. Um, <laughs> all right. Anyway. Okay. Well, let's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift now because I don't want to rush through the poetry. So um, um, let's... Uh, Let's let's shift and do our field trip now. So thank uh, thanks everybody for joining me for our our uh, the text portion of our discussion here tonight. Uh, and I will shift over now uh, to our uh, to our field trip time. Um, so let's see. Um, was there anything else I was going to say? Uh, hmm. Nah, no, I don't think so. Okay. So thanks every, thanks to everybody on Twitter, and I will see you guys next week. Okay.
good and all right <laughs> Gussie Moose's book club reached the return of the king in November yeah we started on the same day that's funny <laughs> wow so I'm going to say death of Boromir but not the eulogy the death of Boromir but not the eulogy yeah the eulogy might take some time yeah that's true enough So that's that's our that's what I'm betting on. So I actually had a theory about the hand. Yeah, it might be a silly one. Okay. Um, it's very cinematic. Uh huh. It's a very cinematic scene, and you know you it see is. it in a lot of like the old horror movies, especially like the um, Lon Chaney movies. Okay. Character actors, especially when they're doing like a creature, yeah, they tend to lead with parts of their body that humans don't. You'll see it even in today's modern horrors where you have like uh, like Mama or um, any of those exorcism movies. You always have these character actors who are like contortionists and they will move parts of their bodies forward right. to make it seem more uncanny than a human simply walking into a room. It's a, it's a distortion of the human figure. Right. Uh, so I yeah, I see the hand creeping forward and I see things like Bella Lugosi's double jointed fingers exactly, you know, making yeah. an entrance onto I was just thinking there. of that. And uh, Arthur's recalling Nosferatu as well, uh, similarly. Yes, Nosferatu is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah exactly. So, yeah, yeah, no, maybe, that's... Maybe that was just a, a subconscious allusion to some of the imagery of horror that he maybe might have seen at the time. I don't think he, he probably wasn't a fan. Of being, you know. It's hard to imagine. I the Catholic Church had, had funny thing, uh, opinions about horror. Well, like, I, I just, I mean... In a sense, Tolkien was okay with horror, you know, like that is uh -huh. the idea of like, you know, scary things and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he does horror really past. well. I read as a kid. Absolutely. But, um, but like vampire movies, I don't know, maybe, but it's a little, um, it's a little hard to imagine Tolkien going out to see Nosferatu, for instance. Um, well, the, yeah, but yeah, there is that. You never know. Well, you know. He, he, he did go on dates. We, we are aware of that. And there was nothing else to do. You go see a silent picture, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, um, no, Brick tells, we don't really know much more about much about the movies that Tolkien saw. Um, I, uh, Snow White, of course. Yeah. That's the, one of the only instances I can think of where we have like evidence that he went to a movie. Um, uh, even just the fact that he alludes to the cinema so infrequently, you know? Um, I mean, again, like I compare to C.S. Lewis, like C.S. Lewis in his essays and stuff refers to the cinema, not like all the time, but with some frequency, even giving illustrations from movies that he's seen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, like, again, I was just reading his own stories where he talks about uh, the ways in which the f the filmmakers who made the film version of King Solomon's Mines, the writer, the Ryder Haggard novel, uh -huh. wrecked it, right? You know, like the like the the things about the story that they were really insensitive to. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, so so he again, like clearly, he saw movies, um, though I don't get the impression he was a huge fan. But in any case. <laughs> He might be like my husband. He took me to see a movie every two weeks, and then once we got married, he never saw one again. <laughs> <laughs> Not if he could help it. Who knows? Oh, so, well, 
But one other thing, did you notice that our, our good old buddy Rudar left his mark in the in the room here? You know, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, if you if you look right o- over here in this banner, yeah, when we were looking at the Rudar banners, this is one of the really nice full color ones, which of course we've been mostly looking at carvings in stone. And there are a couple <laughs> places like in uh, in uh, Gartha Garwin where you can see the full color version of the banner. But yeah, this is the full color Rudar symbol uh, where you can see that it's actually like blood soaked ground beneath the five trees, which make up also the spiky crown uh, of Rudar. Um, and you know, in this kind of version, you can see most clearly that it's trees and blood under the shadow uh, of the trees. Um, but um, the fact that they're black trees, yes, really does evoke the symbol of the Iron Crown. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but uh, but yeah, so no, this is a really good, uh, a really good, the clearest version of it. Um, I don't think there's anywhere that we get a better version of it than this one here. And yeah, I had been, I had been noticing that when I came home from the field trip a couple weeks ago, I went past this banner and I was like, Oh, Hey, look at that. And then I meant to mention it last time and forgot. Uh, so yeah, thanks for, (laughs) thanks for reminding me. Okay. Well today we're going to go to the Barrow Downs. It's time actually to, um, uh, to, to go to the Barrow Downs, which we've been postponing for a while, but now that we've seen the inside of the, of the Barrow and we're about to get out of it, um, we're going to, we're going to do that. So, um, we're just going to, we're just, we're not, we no need to do any fancy travel. So we're just going to go out and ride there. I do want to ride there though, from, I do want to, tr- uh, trace the steps of the hobbits to the Barrow Downs. Um, so I don't want to go in through the main entrance, just past the crossroads. I want to go down and go into the old forest through Adso's camp so that we can approach the Barrow Downs from Tom Bombadil's house. So it's a, it's a bit of a roundabout way, um, but, uh, so we'll meet outside that's okay. So yeah, well, well, we can meet like at the crossroads, I guess, and then ride from there or which, or if, or we'll catch up to you at Adso's camp one way or the other. Oh, I'm good with whatever. I'll meet you guys at the crossroads then. Yeah. <sighs> oh, lagging in Brie, hard to believe. Oh, really? So my car situation has been amended. I've gotten a new van. For, and um, because the last van was uh, silver and this one was a white van, the kids are calling it Vandolf the White. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, that reminds me, we just came in, um, in our reading of the Silmarillion. Uh, my sons and I just came to the first place where Tolkien uses the word van in its archaic sense. Like meaning, uh-huh. meaning in the front, uh, but like Matthias was extremely amused at Tolkien using the phrase, you know, they were in the van, uh, uh-huh. uh, which is understandably amusing. Oh yeah, I was, I was yeah. My kids were asking because there's, I think there was some some song. I, I think it was a musical song from the Victorian period that uses the word van. It's like no, it just means a cart where you can move a lot of stuff around. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yes, yes, uh, yeah, Bricktails, that, that line about Aragorn. Isn't Aragorn and Aemir riding with Theoden in the, in the van? Um, 
Yeah, it's out of out of context. It's easy to misunderstand. It paints a pretty funny mental picture of them, you know, yeah. fighting over the armrest and uh, exactly. trying to find where that seatbelt attachment went. <laughs> yeah. Tony wants to know if your old van was Vandolph the Grey. Um, well, I, I jokingly called it Mithrandir because it was silver colored. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, and it had it. Um, I had a I had a Tolkien vanity plate that said Four Shire on nice. it with a with the J.R. Tolkien signature symbol on there. So yes, definitely Tolkien theme to begin with. It's just the fact that we had a new one and it's white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That drove the irony home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Druid's Fire, it's not exactly short for Vanguard. It works the other way around. So like, there's the van in the rear, right? The van of an army and the rear of an army, it's like, the, it's like you know, fore and aft, you know, in a, on, a, on a ship, right? The van just means okay. the front and the rear. So you've got the rear guard who guards the back, and you've got the vanguard who guards the, the van, who guards the front. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's just that, you won't find many other books written in the 20th century that use the word van in that sense, because it's it's an archaic sense. Even like the word vanguard, of course, is not used very often and would be considered archaic. Um, but the word van is older than that. Right. So, um, yeah. Oh, the word. Yeah, a hundred editors would send that back saying change this to something other people recognize immediately as not a vehicle that holds seven people. Exactly. Right. And speaking of things that editors would send back for changes these days, Natvilkius points out that the worm Ouroboros probably uses it. That would not surprise me in the least, Natvilkius. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, it's... Uh, um, uh, that's, uh, um, again, not surprising because of the heavily archaic speech of uh, everybody in the Worm Ouroboros. All right, sorry. Let's head into the Old Forest here. So this is a non-canonical entrance to the Old Forest. Um, we don't, of course, know that there was not an, an exit from the Old Forest at this spot uh, in the books, but uh, certainly it never enters into the story. Um, but that's Being okay. Being forest, you figure there's multiple entry points. Right, so exactly. You can kind of get into it anywhere you want to, right? Uh, in fact, it's kind of funny if you think about it. Like this exit, this is almost like... So if you... Um, I'm looking at the map right now. Uh, the Bald Hill is here. It's like this opening spot right here. So uh-huh. um, if you... Uh, if you think about the way that the, the the path that they see, remember back to the the the, the passage on the bald hill. Notice that in the in the in-game map of the old forest, you get the road, right? They, you can just see the road up here in the north. Um, so from the bald hill, you'll recall they saw what looked like a fairly. Their plan was to go to leave it to the north, right up to to, to pick up the road again. Um, so indeed, this path that we're coming in is sort of more or less exactly the the way that they were hoping to get out, that they were hoping to leave the forest from the Bald Hill. Um, but of course, the game does preserve that, right? You can't get here from there. You can't go from the Bald Hill to this northern exit um, 
you can only go by way of the Withy Windle, right? Both all of the paths lead you down to the Withy Windle. To get from here to the Bald Hill, you have to go through the Withy Windle. To get from the Bald Hill down to here or indeed to anywhere else on this side, you know, to the Barrow Downs, to Tom Bombadil's house, um, to this northern exit, you have to go down to the Withy Windle first. So they did... Uh, it's they, almost like the forest is hurting you. <laughs> right, exactly. They, they, did, uh, they did manage to sort of accomplish that... Uh, that thing, and I know that uh, Druid's Fire. I know that the map is not uh, original. You know that they didn't always have this map um, in game. But uh, oh man, how much how much was that set before before they made the map for this? I could barely get through with the map. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, I also was not playing in the pre-map days, uh, and it's hard to imagine. Um, oops, sorry. Yeah, I think down here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I still I, get turned around. <laughs> it's easy to get turned around in here. Yeah. It really does. This is this is. I don't know. This is one of the few times when I get, went into this forest. I really did feel like they really captured just how you yeah. know completely lost you could get in the world. Yes. Even though, uh, like, the paths that they make are relatively wide, you know, and, and there's lots of places where you can't go, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's more like following a labyrinth than getting lost in a forest, right? Uh-huh. And yet, it still does effectively create that... Uh, I mean, ev- even the fact that there are those designated paths, right? Let's make sure everybody gets here. We're at Tom Bombadil's house. Uh-huh. Oh, and the map can be misleading. It's one of those things where I think that's an opening there, and you find out, no, it's right. a wall of trees. It's almost an opening. <laughs> I right, get as frustrated exactly. as Mary does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, cool. All right, I think everybody made it to Tom's house. Okay, right. so we came to Tom's house before. Now, this is the path out to the Barrow Downs. Now, it is nighttime. Uh, so we won't be getting the full effect that the hobbits had going through the, the bright day. Now I'm wondering if this hill here, like, so okay, so one issue here, the description of just the terrain, right? Of you know, like the country as it opens up around them and everything like that. It's really hard to do that accurately with in-game geography because the scale is completely different in the in-game geography, right? They just they can't make in order to maintain the scale that they have in order to make it feasible, you know, to ride all the way to Rivendell or to, you know, Minas Tirith in a reasonable amount of in-game time. Um, they can't make it very far from Tom Bombadil's house to the Barrow Downs. Right. So, uh, um, it's, it's just one of the natural kinds of, uh, um, consequences of, uh, um, of the, um, one of the consequences of the scale here. So the, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's never very sensible to go through and kind of look at the terrain around you and kind of compare it exactly to what was described in the book. What we do get here though, is that we're following along in a valley. You'll notice along the sides, right? We're not just in the trees on both sides. We have sloping rock sides going up. Um, and that is, as was described uh, in the book, that it's not just, uh, we're not just going through paths defined by trees. 
um, they're following sort of the contours of the land uh, until eventually they're going to be it's going to take us out and we'll see the, the valley kind of narrow in on us here and dump us dump us into the Barrow Downs itself. The lay of the land does brook no refusal. You are either going this way or you are staying at Tom's. Yes, yes, it really does. You can't... The fantasy that the hobbits have in the book of just sort of skirting the edges of the downs and, like, missing them and heading north is not a possible <laughs> thing laughable. here. It's laughable. Yeah, it's... And, I mean, maybe that itself is kind of a, an interpretive point, right? That uh, they're plan had been, you know, absurd from the beginning. Even the fact that, you know, Tom's advice suggesting that um, uh, that they should pass to the to the west side of any barrow that they come to suggests that he thinks it at least very likely that they're going to be among the barrows themselves rather than avoiding them altogether. Um, yeah. So, uh, yes, JJ is recalling that we do need to keep the wind in the left eye, uh, which, of course, assuming that the wind is coming from the west, which would be comforting, uh, would be a good idea. But I'm going to immediately disregard that and head south. Now, the 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 other thing, which again does is not, you know, they have not really matched to the description of the. Like, oh, you can't really follow in the footsteps of the hobbits in the sense of coming to the place where they had lunch without going through barrows, essentially. I mean, we're already passing, like, ghosts and standing stones and all these things. You know, like, they would not come to this hill and be like, oh, so we're probably not really in the barrow downs yet, right? Let's just hang out here and have lunch. No wanderers would come to this valley as it's depicted in the game and be like, well, this looks like an innocuous place for a break. You know, let's settle down, put our backs against that enormous spire and... uh have a and bit of a nap. <laughs> yeah. And actually the sarcophagi seem a little, it makes me want to like, were those installed later? Maybe, you know, I don't need, I don't really know, but yeah, that, that, that certainly would appear to be a bad sign. Right. Statues. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, uh, the game doesn't make any attempt really, uh, to recreate, the apparent innocence of this, right? We do get that effect with the Bald Hill, um, you know, where they do make the Bald Hill look like a kind of pleasant oasis in the middle of the in the middle of the forest. Um, uh, but um, but yeah, this is all just very creepy from the very beginning. Um, uh, given the much uh, higher activity of whites around here, it's maybe it's safe to say the hobbits stirred things up and we're just sort of dealing with the aftermath. That is a thing always to keep in mind, right? It is always true that uh, often the game design differs for a reason in those ways, right? Like things are different since, you know, the hobbits came through even because the hobbits came through. Um so it's conceivable that that sort of an explanation is... But again, I can't imagine that somebody came and erected these sarcophagi since then, just uh, No, I think the kicks, sarcophagi but, are yeah. no good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no sugarcoating those, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, not really. But again, you know, like, it's fine. Like, it's... Um, this is not one of those places where they have chosen fidelity to the book. But they chose something else instead, right? What they've chosen uh-huh. instead is to make this a part of 
the Barrow Downs, to kind of create the effect in the Barrow Downs as a whole, um, to try to capture what the Barrow Downs, how the Barrow Downs were described in the book and the effect of the Barrow Downs in the book. It, it does add an interesting bit of history to the area. I mean, otherwise, mm-hmm. everything here seems a little bit unmarked. This is the only thing that's given us some sort of indication of who might have been here. Right. Who they speculate might have been here. Right, exactly. It is one of the... So that's exactly sort of the the, the next question, right? Um, what um, What is the effect? So, like, you know... How do they depict things? Well, one thing that you notice when you just kind of just sort of to ride randomly about the Barrow Downs for a little bit, we have all these stones. Now, some of the stones seem obviously placed there for a reason, like the ring of stones and the enormous standing stone uh, in the middle of the dead spire where we just were and where the hobbits presumably had lunch. And there are other places where you come across these rocks which look the same, but which are obviously set in a circle like these right up here, right? Uh-huh. So these rocks, they're not carved rocks at all. They're not carved upon, and they're not shaped in any obvious way, right? Or at least uh-huh. they don't retain any shape if they formerly had one. And yet it's perfectly clear when you, you know, look at it from above or you see it on the minimap that these have been placed deliberately in a circle. This is a stone ring, not just a bunch of boulders, right? Even though in other places it kind of looks like they may just be random boulders, right? You can't be really sure. Then there are some places like this where, many years over here. Right, yeah. where we have a barrow and these are actually carved, right? So... This one has an actually interesting figure carved on it. This one right here, it's, it's, it's almost like it's Ooh. recoiling or something. Yeah, I didn't really notice that before. Yeah, it's got I the hands raised like that. I think that might be part like of the that. new landscape update. I'm not sure. I hadn't seen Maybe I just never noticed. Yeah. Did anybody see that button? It's There's, got what looks like a sunburst down at the bottom. Uh-huh, and then a skull under a helmet, and the two hands are held up. I don't know if it's like curled up in the fetal position or if it's like trying to keep something away i can't quite tell but i also noticed this stone is much darker than the regular standing stones like yeah. it was brought here from somewhere else and that actually follows with the, the landscape of england too you have your natural standing stones which are just you know local rocks that were just stood up in an interesting position and then you have the ones where they imported stone from right. miles and miles away right to to specifically put into sacred places right Exactly. So you, you can almost see that there's some sort of evolution of this place. It started out as maybe mm-hmm. something much, mm-hmm. much older, and, and with you know maybe even before uh, cra- the idea of crafting tools for for artistic decoration had been come up with. And then we have these sort of later additions here, yeah, which are uh, more more structure, more eldritch details. Exactly. Yes. It's uh, it's very it's all clearly very ancient. And yet, uh, you can see what does look like different, different eras, different purposes, but none of it is totally clear, right? Exactly, exactly what it is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that carving, I'm really. Oh, wait, look, there's his face over here. He's turning his face down. Mm-hmm. I didn't see his face before. Right there's his face, and he's got a, he's got fangs, so that looks uncomfortable. Yeah. It looks like a skull. It looks like he's already a skeleton, but he's got hands. Yeah, he'll, he's got flesh yeah, on his hands. 
going not in the face, not in the face. You know? He does. <laughs> he does. Are those fangs? Uh, I can't tell if it's fangs or just canine teeth in a skull, which always looks like fangs. I mean, the, that eye socket looks kind of skull-like. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that is a skull. I, I almost want, it's like, is this the position they buried their dead in? What, like, like this? You know, like those old, well, yeah, no, you've seen them a lot in those old peat graves. They bury these, sol- some of these people, not soldiers usually, but usually laymen are sort of laid in a fetal position like they're going to sleep. But right. this guy's a warrior. That's a weird position for him. Yeah, he's clearly wearing a helmet. And he's got a shield. Got a shield. That, the shield has the sunburst on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in front of him. Is that his leg? What I'm trying to figure out is if he's... If he continues below the ground or not. This thing right below the shield, right? Like uh, his elbow is resting on it. Is that mm-hmm. a leg or is that something? Like, is that his legs pulled up so he's sitting on the ground? Or... Yeah, it, it does look like he's sort of curled up. Right. There's another one over here. It's a, it's an echo of the same one. It's the same thing in mirror. I want to see around the other side. Hang on. Huh. Oh, there's on the other side. Yeah, yeah. It looks like his legs are. Oh, it's. A, it, it, I think it looks like a skeletal leg on this side. This looks like, like a. Like he's got a like seeing, a boot or something. There's yeah, the back of his head. You can see his uh, fibula and tibula. Um, oh, yeah? Sort of curled up on the side back. Oh, on the other one, on the mirror image one. Uh, yeah, yeah, you see those? they got two white lines almost indicating that he's already he's already a skeleton. I see. I see how the white's catching a little differently here. Uh-huh. Huh. But he's not a skeleton. Look at his hands. He's got fleshy hands. That's a gloves. Gauntlets. Gauntlets? Skeleton inside of gauntlets. Okay. He does have... He's got... It did look for a second. Somebody was saying it looked for a second like his hands were bound. But no, those are clearly... Each wrist individually has those. Yeah. But his wrist seems to fill up the gauntlets. He does look like he's trying to ward something away, though. Yes. Crazy. One fist closed and one hand open. Yeah, we better get inside one of these guys or we're never going to be dead. <laughs> oh, that's true. Which one is this? Ring door? This is ring door. Okay. Is this just the spiders? I don't know which one No, is that's the one that begins with a T. Which Teradon. I'm, Teradon, yeah, which I'm still kind of resentful of because I'm a completionist, so I had to complete that stupid deed. For which I haven't forgiven. Oh, that's right. I dislike this one. Okay, so we've got a chubby... Oh, hang on. I was looking at that. All right, here's one of the ghost guys. Okay. I know. They're going to attack folks, so it's going to be tough to inspect the whites. All right. Guys, let the professor get a look at the whites, and then we can kick their butts, okay? So hang back, hang back, hang back. Hang back. Don't kill everybody. Go ahead. Okay, here we go. All right. Oh, look, your favorite guy's just got to stop shooting pigs. Everybody stop okay. shooting pigs. All right, so we've got the fat, chubby ones. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're terrible. They just look like big waterlogged corpses. Yeah. Hate them. With hair. They have, like, four locks. 
right? Ew, like Homer Simpson. Yeah, so it's ugly. Like, big fat white in loincloth with comb over, right? Who, who barfs on you. Yes, who barfs on you, generally. Uh, and then you have these ghostly dudes over here. Uh-huh. Who dark are, waters. Putrid. Yes, who are... And they, they're actually dark waters? Mm-hmm. Yes, they That's are. That's what it okay. says, putrid dark putrid water. dark waters, okay. I didn't see, uh, what was it, creature type? It just says the dead. Yes, the dead. So they are skeletal with winged helmets. Uh-huh. And what do they have on their... Shoulders. Is that a, another? Is that a bird too? Uh, hang on. Where is uh, it? Let's see. It just looks like shoulder guards, but I'm not sure. Can't really see the detail because I keep seeing his bones through it all. Yeah. Um, mm, no, uh, from that like angle. Arrow, it looks like a cluster of arrows, or oh, it looks like an evil seven-pointed star. Actually. You think so? I don't know. It's got seven points on it. Maybe. Uh oh. Uh-oh, they're killing that somebody. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I know they will aggro on low-level folks, so... Yeah, it almost looks like a like a starburst or some yeah. kind of thing on yeah. her shoulder. Okay. What you got, ugly? Well, I don't want to go too... Yeah, I don't want to go too deep into here because I don't want everybody to get lost. This is a pretty easy to get lost in Barrow, as I recall. Um, but here, it's okay. Let's, let's, let's get out of this one. I want to go into other Barrows. Okay. This this barrow is a little bit weird. That is, it's weird in the sense that it has all of this wooden scaffolding, right? Yeah, a waterfall. And, and a waterfall. Like, oh, I'd, water features are a little hard for me to understand. And these wooden stairs. Who built the wooden stairs and how recently? Oh, a Kurgram. Well, huh. we'll get to them another time. Um, see, it's almost like you have... Like the ancient path in, right? This like this ancient stonework with the same kind of spiral design that we saw on some of the standing stone outside, mm-hmm. like the ones that did not have crouching dudes on them. Uh, mm-hmm. But then we get to the wooden stairs. Uh, yeah, and it almost looks like it's scaffolding, like they haven't finished it or something. Rothgar suggests that there's a water feature because that barrow was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, which seems entirely... Like it's falling apart. (laughs) (laughs) Seems entirely possible. Um, Okay. But yeah, like, where's the spring out here, you know? Yeah. Wouldn't there be, like, a well or or some sort of spring to indicate why all that is under there? This bit's baffling. Okay, okay, well, let's go into... uh, uh, Which one is it? Teradar? For a second. Is this the one? Yep, Teradon. Teradon, yeah. Okay, and first let's just confirm, yep, this has another crouching guy in front of it. Don't kill the things right inside the door! Yes. Things right inside the door, what I want to see. There we go! Oh, quick, somebody already killed him. There was the hand. Yeah, that was what I wanted to see. That's it. I'm done. I just wanted to see the crawling, the creeping hands. Um... (laughs) Which is kind of funny, right? That they would... First of all, that when the creeping hands are accompanied by an armless zombie who looks like he's the one who lost the hand. Um, uh-huh. On the one hand, it's very like natural that you would make creeping hands. Because, I mean, who doesn't like a good creeping hand, right? 
Um, yeah, and it, it sure got me by surprise. I didn't know it was attacking me till I looked down and saw like I was in a puddle of hands. That was certainly an experience my first right. time in here. Exactly. Um, but um, but of course, although it seems like it's very uh, similar to the book, in fact, it's quite different from the book, right? Because like hands just crawling around on their own unattached to anyone is not in fact what we see, right? I mean, you, you don't, um, as we were discussing today, uh, the severing of the hand or the breaking off of the hand is what Frodo accomplished. Um, yeah. So just like looking down and seeing an animate hand scrabbling at your ankle is not in fact the experience that Frodo had. But okay, I don't want to look around and tear it on too much more because first of all, this is an entirely spider-themed barrow, and also because I'm still bitter uh, because I had to spend so much time completing the stupid kill a hundred spiders in Taradan deed. Um, so I'm not quite as bitter about that as I am about about Hitbold, uh, but still, I'm not a fan yeah. of Taradan. So. Still working on Hitbull. I haven't even got to it in Glory. No. This raid, I never will. <laughs> yeah. And Matt, I agree. These are also much bigger than traditional barrows. And see, here, it's hard because this is where I feel... Uh, I feel a kind of conflict, right? That is, um, just as answering the question, why, you know, is there a disembodied hand here... Um, you know, like how I consider because Tolkien wanted it to be scary, a kind of non-answer to that question. Um, when trying to consider the the game world in the same kind of way and thinking about sort of the implication, the story implications of the way they have designed and laid things out here. Um, explanations like, because it's part of the tile set that they're using is not to me a very interesting answer to any of my architectural questions. Um, nor are like game mechanics related questions or, you know, answers like because they wanted to make it this way for the game, um, you know, for gameplay, a very interesting story answer either. So in general, I sort of resist those things. At the same time, I have to uh, like acknowledge the fact. Oh, this is the big dude, isn't it? One of them. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the big dog, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the big dog barrow. Um, however, having said that and thinking about Matt's comment, it's one of the things, of course, I also find very striking about the barrows here is that so many of them are quite huge. I refer to getting lost in one of them, just simply losing your way, um, which would be an unusual kind of experience to have, uh, it would seem in many of the barrows as they are described, but, um, well, that one instance, too. They actually made a labyrinth out of these. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, you mean the, the Great Barrow? Yeah, the Great Barrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this one, like, sort of architecturally, is much more like, I know, the really high ceilings here, right? You know, uh, not only is it possible for whites and hobbits to stand upright here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they're like cathedral ceilings in this barrow, but it's fine. I understand. Um, yeah, no, I, I remember visiting Avesbury Hill as an 11 year old and banging my head on the ceiling. <laughs> right, right. But anyway. The school nurse knew by name, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, however, apart from the high ceilings, this is the one that seems to me most like sort of what I would expect a barrow to look like, right? You have a, 
you know, what looks like a burial chamber here. You know, this would have been a ceremonial burial chamber. The light shafts are interesting. I assume that that's mostly just like where the roof is caved in, not designed features. Um, also a little peculiar as it's nighttime outside, but I'm not going to worry about that right now. Um, uh, but anyway, so, so we come around this corner to this largest room. We see a lot of the same sort of carvings and it interests me how abstract these carvings are. We found that one guy, but there doesn't seem to be any attempt unless I'm simply misunderstanding it at representation yeah, uh, this reminds me of Celtic miniatures with uh, simply patterns and swirls on them. Yes, patterns uh, and although, swirls are what we get. Although the cloud ones over here look more Chinese than Celtic. Yeah, well, it doesn't look exactly Celtic, but that's okay. I mean, it's okay. Yeah, right? no, this that's one fine. Is, that's cool. We've got bats living in here, which is fine. Um, but, uh, oh, yeah, you'll get those. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we just have the two, the two cha- and that's pretty much it. Just the two chambers and the and the tunnels in between them. Um, mm-hmm. So this seems to me much more like, as from a, from the way that it's described, what I would have expected the inside of a, uh, in general terms, what I would have expected the inside of a barrel to look like. Um, the, the vaulted ceilings almost look like they they put in sort of a they sort of combined the it with a catacombs. Right. Like yes. Ro- Roman catacombs. Like Ro- Roman catacombs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is fun. I, I mean, that still evokes the feeling of death, which I really much, I very much appreciate. The mm-hmm. only thing that gets me in these is like, you know, where all if this is a burial chamber. Where's all their possessions? Where's all their armor? Where's all their their models of all the things they would need in the afterlife? Right. Where's all their their proofs of their conquests, their great deeds and stuff? Not to mention, there's no like beer. You know, there's no slab, like stone slab or something on which, or slabs upon which bodies would be like. There's no evidence of, like, where bodies might have rested. I mean, is this, like, was this yeah. never used or something? You know, we. it's not that I'm, like, looking for sarcophagi because that's not, yeah. this, you know, that's not a thing. We don't get sarf- any reference to sarcophagi, but... Um, behind the stones, okay, let me... Behind the stones, you think? Um, I'm not really seeing anything. Now these, a lot of these stones just look like they fell over, and the rest look like roof supports. Yeah, or some of them are there are freestanding though. Yeah, like this one is freestanding. I, can, I can't go behind yeah, have, it, but I can look we behind have our it. Artwork and our load bearing artwork. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Fun stuff. These look like these look. Like, yeah, like this is tipped over, but it, I don't think they were marking tombs because the ones that have fallen over. Like, you'd think we'd be able to see the opening of a tomb, right? When you look behind this tipped-over one, and the wall is just the same as elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, these, these stones are either meant as artistic or some sort of spells. <laughs> right. Right. Um, Robert wonders if maybe the men of Cardolan cleared them out. Maybe. I don't know where the holes in the ceiling came from. Right. Letting in some light. I mean, but we we know they had a lot of their rushes. That's what they decked the hobbits out in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you'd think treasures would still be sitting around here. Um, Yeah, 
Yeah. And especially something this big, because if one guy is buried in a place this big, you know they built it this big for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, in order to accommodate treasure and stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, JD, there can't be tomb robbers like a numinous style tomb robbers around here because like the Barrow Whites would see to that, right? I mean, this, these are not, these are not, uh, there are no unattended treasures. In the Barrow Downs. This isn't like even dim. This isn't like even dim where everybody just moved away after that. Exactly. <laughs> There's the, the the tenants are still here. Yeah. Yeah. Now we do get we do get the pots, but the pots, the pots are 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 crafting relics, right? I, think so. I, I don't think there I are. Think so. I don't think there are any. Took that one. Yeah, I think they're I think they're gone already for that reason. Yes, they're, they're historical value. It's been stated many times. They're historical value. Historical value, exactly. Now, I don't think that's, we can that's see... That's the difference between a scholar and a grave robber. I don't think we can see any, apart from the carvings on the stones, any kind of artifacts of any at all here. No. <laughs> JJ points out that the tomb robbers are much higher level than the Barrow Whites. <laughs> Wise guy. Um... Oh, someone got a shovel out already. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to dig for it? Okay. Yeah. This guy over here is going to dig for it. Check that out. <laughs> Arurian. There we go. Arurian. That's hard to say. See, isn't it hard to say? Arurian. I've been Arururu. practicing for, for weeks. Yes. Okay, Raggy. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, we should try the Great Barrow. I don't know. Um, oh yeah, good point. We do have the braziers, which we haven't looked at. Mm-hmm. Those are artifacts. So we do have something besides the stone. Yeah. Yeah. A bit minimalistic, but it is. It doesn't seem to be quite in the like idiom of the Barrow Whites, you know. There's a big difference yeah. between I'm going to light a cheery fire atop this, you know, iron brazier. Uh, big difference between that and I'm going to make your body glow with a pale green corpse light, right? Yeah, something between uh, something you'd see in a Catholic church or something you'd see in a backyard patio. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, we're getting good light off them, you know. They're, right. They're, they're, they're functional. But honestly, yeah. we're getting more light off those sunbeams up there. Yeah, exactly. We do get some mist. We do get a little bit of kind of greenish glow. Not so, not so much in this one. I forgot to comment on it. In the other barrow, the one with the water feature, there was much more of the the uh, green glow. Yeah, the green, the green and purple. Uh, I mean, artistically, yeah, uh, I, I love that. Those those two secondary colors are really fantastic, creating the, just this eerie atmosphere. Yeah. I, I always laugh though when I see like barrows and caves, and they're lit up with eerie glows. I'm always remembering that line from I think it was Terry Pratchett's uh, their Color of Magic or the the second sequel to that. He's talking about how uh, in caves you always have lichen that's specifically grown in caves to give just enough lighting for all the adventurers coming through. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I was 
thinking of continuing on to the Southern Barrow Downs, but I should probably save that for next week. Um, yeah, it's uh, St. It's Nicholas Eve. Some people have shoes to fill. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll let people go. It's midnight anyway here. So um, we will head. So next time for our field trip next week, we will head south um, where we will get to see uh, the interaction between yet another sort of archaeological layer here as we will get the clear Numenorean construction on top of the uh, the old Barrow Downs pre-Numenorean construction that we're getting here. So, so cool. Yeah. All right. So thanks, everybody, for joining us this week for our Barrow Downs field trip and our discussion of Frodo's big choice here. And we will... Everybody's getting set on fire. Um, so uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. And uh, next week, wait, next week's happening as usual. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So we'll see you guys next week. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.